0: On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I welcome in someone clearly smarter than both of us. I'll leave it as a mystery for who he is, but um, he shows how smart he is, which is great. Uh, We talk a little bit about the upcoming big World Putting League event between Kanish and Rob Pizzola, and then we finish with Rufus giving us some golf picks as always which will make everyone happy out there so with that it's like the process bet bet I bet I bet the process bet
1: bet Bet, bet, bet the process, welcome to the podcast, bet the process, it's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense, if you came just for pics you're in the wrong place, find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case, instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings, crunching all the numbers in a simulated system, that break down the data analytically driven, media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic, the bottom line is watered down, it seems like they
0: don't get it. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus and I are celeba- celebrating Sepp Straka. Are we celebrating? Yeah? No? I mean, a win's a win. What do you mean a win's a win? Why aren't, but, you, but self- a win is- Why aren't you more excited?
2: Because but now Sepp it's Straka. on to the Scottish Open. It's on to Cincinnati. It's on to
0: Cincinnati? All right. Well, who's going to win in the Cincinnati Open in Scotland? The Cincinnati or- Open in Scotland. Let's see. Um... By the way, it's like so crazy now to like look at futures odds in golf because there's so many different <laughs> tournaments going on that they're offering futures odds are now. Like you can't just like, and especially with these non-elevated events, sometimes you don't even know which one's the PGA event because you're like, who True. are
2: these people? Well, the Scottish Open is the second year that it's been cross-listed PGA European, and it's one of the Rolex Series events for the European Tour. So it's funny, though, that now the Barbasol in, in Kentucky and Keen Trace has like the shittier half of the European Tour guys, where and in the shittier half of the PGA Tour guys, and vice versa. So, what well, um, did you
0: have Steph Straka out by the, at, by the way?
2: What did I model him at, or what did I bet him? Well, at? no, what was the price that you were able to get? 50, I bet like, I think 55 and 57 to one. Right. Did you, I, did you add any,
0: or did you dirt throughout? No, probably not. No,
2: I don't think we really showed much during the actual tournament. I mean, because he was you you remember he shot two over the first round. Like I think I had probably graded it a loss already at that point. So is that you say, why you know, won? We, we, by we the gave, way, I, I gave it out like before. No, I don't, I didn't actually early grade it, but um, although that early is grading strategy. is the best way
0: to win early grading is the you best have way to win believe something.
2: it's a loss for it to work. <laughs> Let's see. I had made him, I'd made him 41 to one and I was getting, and I got, we got 55 and 60 to one and 57 to one. But but yeah, he was he was way back and 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 so if you say, oh Rufus, you gave it out after the tournament started. Well, I gave it out when he was in the process of shooting it two over. So I think one of our listeners gra- was able to grab it. Someone yeah, someone tweeted someone on said Twitter that they, that they they got fifty four to one
0: or something like
2: that. Someone said they were able to pay for their niece's college education with it. So we're doing good. Yeah. We're doing good work in the world. That is good
0: work. That's a pretty. I mean, unless I don't know where she's going to college or maybe it's preschool maybe it's a state school i don't preschool. know maybe um what else is going on? so scottish open or should we save the scottish open pick for the backside um, um did you know about this by the way did you know about this world putting league thing that's happening with uh Pizzola and and yeah
2: i did well, i mean i know that it happened a month or two no, ago. no it's I happening watching. this week it's, it's happening
0: it's happening again well, you, you, it's you happening know it's happened already
2: though yeah but it's happening yeah. again. And Pazola is going to be in it
0: again. Pazola and condition. And then they're having like their own so, version of the match. I mean, full disclosure. So is this like, the company golf, that does- though?
2: like, do you get, I mean, what sort of qualifications are there for the league? You know, are these are these guys in on well, sponsors the world, exemptions? The world
0: putting leagues though, those two guys. Yeah. They are on sponsors exception with the, the hammer being the sponsor and not really exemption. Um, not, not really. I don't think sponsoring anything. Uh, so the, just to give a little insight into this this company. So World Putting League is is run by um, a uh, uh, um, a company that is actually that I'm an advisor to that is um, really thinking about how to get um, alternate sports regulated and bet on like legally. And so World Putting League is sort of one of the first ones that they're doing right, and ultimately this idea. It's interesting because, you know, like the, the idea of having more stuff to bet on having stuff like structured sports structured in a way that they're, they can be bet on, right? Like if you think about golf in many ways, golf competitions, they're not structured in a great way for you to bet on them. They could be structured if you specifically wanted for them to be in a way that'd be easier to be bet on, right? Even you're saying you
2: you can design a sport such that it is structured in a way that it's easier I don't, to bet. On. I
0: th- I think you're not designing the sport; you're designing the competition. If that makes sense, right? Like the sport is the sport, but you're making the competition set up to be in a way that you know allows the betting to be done in a way that's you know that, that like a, a perfect example is like let's say that in um you know in in golf like when they do like some some like off the front and off the back that all of a sudden like makes it such that there's less time to bet on matchups than there would be other. I don't know. There, there's just like little things that they could do. If they had more uniform breaks and competition, you could have periods of time where you could accept more bets and that kind of thing. Like there's just ways to create better opportunities. Um, and this company pro league network is the one that are actually actively kind of doing this for sports. And, you know, the, the sort of first attempt around uh world putting league that Pizzola and Kanish are gonna be a part of. Um, just just give that a little shout out as it's- They already it's, were a part it of it. Yeah, 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 they are. They're, they're, anyway,
2: yeah. anyways. I mean, um, just, just another of the companies Jeff advises.
0: Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. try to help where I can help. I try to provide, I always tell people when they're not compensating me for an advisor role, I always say, this advice is worth as much as you're paying me for it, which is worth zero. See, see hence the joke. Um, you want to get bring Elihu in and then talk Let's on the it. other side? Okay. So we're gonna have Elihu Feustel on. Elihu Foistel, um, who's one of the most one of the most smartest, most smartest people that we know out there in the sports betting world. And then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. We now welcome in Elihu Foustel. Did I do a good job there? It's close. I'm used to having my name butchered.
2: You were wrong in all of it.
0: <laughs> what, well, how was I wrong on it? Isn't it Elihu? Elihu. Ella who? Elihu. Ella who? I guess it's just the emphasis was wrong on the wrong syllable. Knock, knock um, who's there, Elihu. But also wrong on the last name. And Feustel is German. Feustel. Feustel, got it. All right, well, that's, just, that's an interview, guys. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Now that we got that all figured out. Uh, welcome to Bet the Process. Um, we're obviously big fans of you and what you do on Twitter and what you talk about and Um, But to our seven listeners, probably half of which don't know who you are, so that's three and a half. Talk a little about your background and how you went from your first career, which was law,
3: into sports betting. It was quite an accident. There was a classmate of mine in law school who told me you could make money counting cards, playing blackjack. And like any reasonable, uh, responsible intelligent adult, I said, bullshit, you can't win gambling. And to prove him wrong, I wrote a blackjack simulator that can play a million hands a, a, a second, run counting strategies, do different uh, betting spreads, different cut cards uh, for penetration. And I was shocked that you actually could make money if you did it perfectly. You know, you could make like three quarters of a percent with what I saw around there. So that kind of that got me down the path to the dark side.
0: What, what year was that? And then when you wrote the simulator, like what rules did you actually use for the simulator?
3: So 2001, it was a, the standard rules that we see everywhere. So there was no surrender. It was a six deck game. Uh, no double after. So there was double after split, except if you split aces, then you just got one card. Right. Full. What pay. about
0: hit soft 17 or not hit soft 17? I had,
3: I I could turn that on or off to see how much of a difference. Right. It made. I mean, I had all these things I could turn on or off, um, but yeah, yeah so like, Hit 17 is like a, a two tenths of a percentage differential. It's, it's huge.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just don't remember exactly. I just, I know, the exactly. Offs- I just I know the true offset. So the true offset's like, I think 0. 0.6. So I think it's probably 0. 0.3 would be right, what the number is. I'm not going to argue
3: since I haven't touched the simulator in probably 16 this years.
0: Blackjack nerd shit. But it's interesting <laughs> 2001 it's- timing because that's right when we were finishing, or at least my Blackjack career was ending in 2001 where we yeah. were basically getting chased out of every casino at that point. Um, I recently found a, uh, I was, I went to go golfing in, uh, in, in Portland and there's a casino there in Coos Bay. It's Coos Bay casino and RV park. And they had a six deck shoe, one, uh, one deck cut card, um, hit soft 17, no surrender, but otherwise all the other rules were good. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not, I mean, you could spread from $25 to $500 maximum, so not a horrible game, right?
3: Yeah. So when I started at uh, Blue Chip Card Counting University, they had a, a great game. It was, it was a six, they had, the main game I played was a six deck game, but they typically cut about three quarters of a deck out. And the difference between a three quarter card, three quarter deck versus a full deck cut is you know, makes your profits maybe 50% more. It's huge. How it's exponential. More? Yes. It's, it's gargantuan. And, uh, and I was, you know, spreading 25 to sometimes two hands of 500. And I did that for like a year and a year and change before they finally asked me not to do that anymore. Okay. So, so you, you ever tried a, it? it you, well, I was going to say you I'm took the a,
2: scientific approach to blackjack well jeff if we keep going down the blackjack path we'll never get yeah,
0: to one, one more question one more question did you ever what were the best ploys that you did to try to influence where they put the cut card in
3: uh thin to win and tip anytime they gave me a thin cut so uh it, it, i don't i don't know that it made much of a difference but uh, you know if you're getting if you cut off six extra cards and get one extra hand it's probably worth a five dollar cut on a on that thing five dollar tip it's always
0: very, um, it's like a delicate dance because yeah. you kind of want to influence that without
3: actually being too obvious that you're trying to influence that. Yeah. But I mean, some of the dealers can tell you're counting cards. Like no one in, almost no one who's watching, the, the pit bosses have no clue. And if you mix in other things, like, you know, if you're going to do an ace track or slug tracking, uh, so you're you're changing it up, your M.O., they get really they they have they look at one deck and see that you're betting big off the top and then you cut down when they they just get all messed up so that that gets a lot of longevity i think yeah i i always
0: think that back in the in the early this is probably before you started playing but the mgm and the rio both had really really easy shuffles that you could do you know uh you know nrs or you know packet tracking or whatever you call it in these days um and you could also just bet big off the top and you could also just play a straight shoe game and you could do call in so you did like four different things that your betting yeah. pattern looked different and that get that buys you a fair amount of time before if you just i mean the problem is the casinos are very results based so if you just yes. keep winning at some point they just they just figure it out all right the, anyways move on rufus
3: <laughs> the other thing is if you're pocketing about $50 in chips an hour not a not crazy amount but when they look at it they're, they're not you know not noticing that you're chips are slowly disappearing into your pockets, that goes a long way toward longevity. I mean, if you're only making, you know, a hundred bucks an hour is you're, if you're a newer player and you cut that win rate down in half, that goes a long way.
0: But that's also because that's such a small amount that they have no ability to really track it beyond like
3: looking at Yeah, once Yeah, you, once you're is, in right? black or purple, then it doesn't work. Yeah. But Yeah. Okay, uh, Rufus, we, we, are we ready, ready to
2: graduate? So at <laughs> some point... You graduated from blackjack or moved on at least to sports betting. And it sounds like the the approach you took to blackjack is very scientific and data-driven and being able to say, okay, like create something to model reality and then see if it works and, and build a system based off of that. Did you take the, how did you get into sports betting and did you take that same approach?
3: Another friend of mine said, why are you wasting your time in blackjack? You can make a lot more money in sports betting. And like re- any reasonable, intelligent person, I said, "Bullshit! You can't win gambling. Maybe you can in blackjack, but not in sports betting because everyone who bets sports loses." So he showed me a a data approach to attack actually NFL spreads, which is probably the worst possible thing I could have attacked. Um, but it it passed the math sanity check. So I we started. I started with my five thousand dollar bankroll, combined blackjack and now. This was before, I I wasn't betting 25 to 250, you know, 500 for a while in blackjack. So there was a while where, you know, my bankroll was slowly building up. And the first year, I think I was only, I started with 5,000.
2: Well, you're a lawyer also, so you're probably pretty conservative and you're, you're not going to take unnecessary risks.
3: Well, I don't know that being a lawyer and taking and not taking risks are correlated. Uh, lawyers are some of the worst risk takers out there.
2: True, but I feel like they don't realize where they're taking
3: the risks necessarily. Yeah, um, but there was a lot of risk management actually in when I was doing per, both personal injury lawsuits and insurance defense. So one thing I would do differently from a lot of other lawyers is I would make an estimate of the probabilities of each outcome. And then you know if an insurance adjuster says, "Do should we settle this? I'd say, here are the possible outcomes. Here's the trial cost. Here's your expected value on a trial. And I'd also do the same thing on a, you know, on the plaintiff side, you know, you have, there's a hundred thousand dollars is the max limit. You have an 80% chance of winning a hundred thousand. You have about a 20% chance of a zero, you know, no matter how good a case is, there's always a 10% chance you lose it completely or 10% chance you win a case you don't deserve to win. And a lot of people don't realize these risks. So if you're, if you have a hundred thousand dollar case and the insurance company offers you 98,000, do you hold out for a hundred? You know, or do you? But you have to see both perspectives. Also, you might say you know, may maybe it's rational for you to do it, but it's also uh, irrational for them to try a case over two thousand dollars. So it was, it was. I mean, I I really enjoyed the gamesmanship on the the, the, the trial logic.
2: Right, and, and most people don't think this way. And I think it's I'm in that way of thinking. I mean, that's if you're a successful sports bettor or gambler of any sort, you probably are thinking that way.
3: Yeah, and there were a lot of times there were ways to mitigate costs. You know, when you're defending a case, the first thing you always want to do is, is there a way I can get this case thrown out immediately? File some motion to dismiss or summary judgment. And so a lot of times, you know, six weeks into the case, you've won it and it's over. And the insurance companies love you for it. The partners for the insurance company, the partners for your law firm have kind of mixed feelings about that. Because on one hand, you did a great job for the client but you didn't make them very much money.
0: Classic misaligned incentives. No, I mean, that's like the the problem with so many professions, right? Is that you have principal agent problem and this is like a classic example, But
2: I was- Jeff is the principal agent in our podcast, just so you know.
3: (laughs) I was very competitive. So for me, it was, you know, I just wanted to win. So I put uh, the clients ahead of the law firm's yeah, they, they. I never got grief about it. They sometimes were surprised, but they never um, reprimanded me or suggested I fight otherwise.
2: Okay, so, Elihu, when when I first encountered you, it was actually on the, I think it was on the SBR forum. I just graduated college. It was two thousand eight. I remember. Were Justin we're, seven. Yeah. yeah, I I think I was like model man or something crazy like that. I and I, I was young and naive, but. Um, you were this sort of revered, respected um, figure there, who helped with player disputes, and you um, eventually wrote a book. And basically, everybody went to you for advice. Um, how did that? Like, can you kind of take us through that um, stage? I mean, were you, were you in the US then?
3: Were you? Um, so I was mostly two thousand five, two thousand four through. 2005, I did a stint for Pinnacle, 2005 through like a couple of years after that, I wrote the Pinnacle Pulse for them. And then when uh, they completely shut down the US because of Black Friday, I was doing a lot more stuff for Sportsbook Review. So mainly player disputes, and it was a nice fit because it's legal. You, you look at a dispute from a legal framework. If there's a contract, who should win this case? And you apply contract law, and that made almost all the cases easy to resolve. The thing that surprised me was how rampant players were attempting to defraud sportsbooks. So probably two-thirds of the claims I saw, a player was clearly cheating or taking a shot. What, is,
0: what does that mean by clearly sheet, cheating or taking a shot? Because we've had all these conversations about like ethics around like bad lines and things like that. But in, in your mind, what, where is that line, or can you give us examples?
3: So a bad line isn't really cheating. A bad line is something you bet. You, if you bet it, you expect them to avoid it. And that's, um, so I didn't get many disputes over that. Um, But I did offer guidance, which is on a bad line, if it's 10% off market, it's probably bad. So for example, if 10%, so if if the market is at even money and you're offering plus 120, that's a bad line. If the market's at even money and they're offering plus 110, that's probably an okay line. Uh, And the exception is on props. If there's no established market, it's really hard to argue a bad line. The more common disputes I had was a person is multi-accounting. In fact, this was probably a vast majority of my accounts. Did this player create two or 100 accounts for the purposes of, of either collecting bonuses or hitting a sports book? Again, that's a soft book that had kicked them out. So there was a lot, you know, a case with sports interaction, for example, was a classic book. You could always beat them out of 10,000 because their lines were bad. And it, when you're up 10,000, they close your account. So you'd have people that would go in again and again, and the books would eventually figure out how you're going in. So there, and this is a, a fraud issue that I actually spent a lot of time on today. When you have a group that comes in uh, for bonuses, you know, every time you, you sign up, make a pause that you get a bonus. So there's an incentive. Um, this is actually well, we'll talk more about this later, but the U.S. has an enormous fraud problem. And they're, they have incentivized it not just with the sign up bonuses, but with the week bookmaking. So, you know, if DraftKings, you can make 20000 per account, then, the, you know, can you make, can you set up the resources to create a fraudulent account uh, cost effectively? If the payoff on a sports book bonus is a $500 or $1,000, then your cost per account has to be a lot lower than $500 or $1,000. When you can make $20,000 off of every account, you can invest some real money into defrauding them. So what makes it a fraudulent account? Uh, If if, If Rufus gets the ID for his brother and his sister and his girlfriend and a hobo in the park and opens up 20 accounts and controls 20 different accounts with you being the person punching in the bets, that's arguably fraud. But if the other person is punching in the bets, it's fair. If you get a room with 20 people and 20 devices, and those people are physically punching in the bets, even though you're telling them exactly what to do, that's not fraud. That's not going to violate any terms. And if it did violate a term, the term is probably unreasonable. But when you're punching in the bets and they're not actually controlling it, you're just using their ID for a proxy, then that's a party foul. Do you think that applies to offshore books also or like yes. where i guess yes so,
1: okay there aren't the
2: regulations the same regulations offshore but no but same. he's
0: but he's he's like that's why it's a question right because if he's approaching it from a, a from a standpoint of what what is the well i'll let you say why you're approaching it how you're approaching it sorry yeah
3: it's so if, if i'm advising a sports book you know do we pay this person do, or do we not pay this person you know the general standard is there must be clear proof that they're not only uh, defrauding you, but that you're suffering a harm from it. So if you have a person who opens two accounts and they're a recreational better, and for whatever reason they opened a second account, there's no harm there. But if you have a person who opens, is doing, I'm gonna call it optimal bonus strategy. He opens one account, busts out, opens second account to c- catch in a bonus. And you can show that the same person is controlling both of those accounts. Uh, and I, I'm not going to tell you how identify that, and I, I don't want I don't want to educate people on how to commit fraud, but there are very clever ways to identify fraud and catch the bad guys. Okay, interesting. So, okay, so
2: I guess kind of segueing, um, talking about the U.S. market. I mean, you had a really interesting tweet last week about how markets essentially are being really, really manipulated now. And, and we actually spoke about this on the phone as well. And yeah, and you, you kind of said that just the, the structure of the US betting ecosystem has kind of made it much easier to manipulate lines. Would you say uh, that has made the markets less efficient than they were maybe back in 2018?
3: Much less efficient. So let's say in 2018, if you wanted to bet... You know, ten grand on a. You want to bet as much as you could on a college basketball game. You you wouldn't bet straight in the pinnacle initially. You'd probably hit all the paperheads you could, and after you ate all the paperheads, you'd fire in the pinnacle and bookmaker and bet online or all the other books and pick up you know scoop up the rest of it. Uh, and so maybe you'd have 20,000 in paperheads. You know, a few th- three or four thousand more offshore on the big offshores, but with the the U.S. books. It's uh, some of the people are capable of creating multiple accounts. People are capable of not just betting the same position, but betting it in a more sophisticated way. So, if you use, you know, like the classic example is the round robin parlays, where you could, on a single college basketball total, you could get 20,000 of exposure in in one click. Um, So, it's the offshores are from a liquidity point of view, are almost irrelevant compared to the U.S. Uh, Now that's changing. The U.S. books are getting tighter on liquidity. But when you can bet so much in the U.S. books that you don't, not only do you not need to uh, bet offshore, but you don't want to bet offshore because by not betting offshore, you're not getting closing line value. So if you're betting into the U.S. books and they see you're betting parlays and they see you're not getting much or any closing line value, they assume you're lucky if you do win, and so what you're seeing is more and more professionals aren't touching the the main market testers. They're hitting the U.S. books, the U.S. books who rely, who they copycat. They don't have most of them don't have really strong bookmaking. You know, they're just copying DraftKings copies, um, and when they're copying, if you don't if you don't fix the market. And they're 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 they're, they're screwed. That, that's what it comes down to. They're screwed. So as long as you don't hit these off offshores, your ability to bet more and last longer into the U.S. books is higher.
2: So where where does this inevitably go? I mean, right now it feels like things probably won't stay the way they are right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, something's got to give, right? The U.S. books are not making as much as they'd like to. Um, does like where? How, how does this sort of tra- state transition to um, down the road?
3: You're going to see, I think, two branches. You have mar- some books that are trying to become market testers like Circa. So Circa is you know, a market tester I define as any book that doesn't collar players and any book that will let you re-bet after you make a limit bet once they adjust the line. And the only book that meets that criterion in the US is Circa. So Circa by doing that protects themselves from this manipulation. You know, if, if they are, they're now put sort of in the same bracket as Pinnacle and bookmaker and Bet Online. If you're going to bet into Circa, that's going to move the Circa screen. Wait,
2: do they? I mean, because someone you could bet and then rebat something it's Circa yeah. to. And if people are identifying Circa, if other books are saying Circa has influence, we think we know that they're a market tester their line move contains information. We're going to follow them on air, you know? And that's fine. And
3: so then Circa becomes immune to the manipulation because they're not relying on Bookmaker. They're relying on their own bets. You know, Bookmaker, if Pinnacle moves, so what? If you want to move their line, you have to put money in there. And because they're a market tester, you don't, not only do you not face the risk of manipulation, but you have people who are sharp bets that aren't going into there because they don't want to educate the U.S. books.
2: You have sharp bets that are not going into
3: Circa, is what you're saying? Yes. For the same reason that, no. for example, if I want to bet a large position, uh, I'm not going to hit the offshores and I am not. I wouldn't hit Circa very early either. So yeah, bet. Circa is
2: like the last book I'm hitting in the U.S. when I've already yeah. got the rest of my position down. Yes, exactly. So...
3: Uh, So you're going to, I think you're going to see a divergence. You're going to have more and more books that are going to start using market testing. You're going to have books that are going to try to resist this to, and I'm going to say draft is likely to go down the wrong path where they're going to not take the sharp approach. They're not going to take the market tester and they're going to continue to try to manually fight every smart person who comes in and they're going to lose that battle because the smart people who choose, who don't mind cheating, who don't mind using lots of IDs, they're going to come in and take as much as they want from DraftKings. I think DraftKings paid out 1.2 billion just in marketing expenses last year. Most of that was promotions. So I mean between promotions and their weak lines, they have no chance against the sharp players. So they're eventually going to have to do something drastically different. And their approach of just kicking people out is is not going to work.
2: What if they took I mean I, I would I guess the the counter to that would be what if they took a more scientific approach to kicking people out? I mean, like think about the success Bet365 has had, which dwarfs the success of Pinnacle and Bet
3: Chris in terms of profitability, at least that we think. So in what does Bet365 rely on to kick a person out? You tell me. I would, I, I don't know their personal. Uh, I, I personally, I don't know exactly how they operate, but I do know that there are gnome operations that have hundreds of accounts with bots attached to it, in Bet three sixty five. So I don't think they're in any way impervious to the same types of hool- hooliganism that's going to happen. Here.
2: Right, but but uh, they they were a book that is invested more in essentially limiting and and identifying fraudulent accounts and and winning yeah. accounts. Not just actually, they've gotten very quickly. their
3: fraud their fraud detection is very good. Yes, the fraud detection is this. from I actually. They taught me a lot about fraud detection when I was at SBR.
2: <laughs> and but I guess the uh, argument though is that they have been more profitable I mean arguably they're one of the if not the most profitable sort of I don't want to say white label cuz they're not white label everywhere I guess but but you know big sports books out there and and they basically chose the not be a market tester approach
3: right now they but their fraud risks were of a different nature than in the US the, fraud, the most common fraud they faced were ident- identities that were completely created. So not an existing person providing an ID, but the creation of an, uh, a persona that did not exist. And we saw this. There were a lot of programs, for example, that would create Ukrainian passports or Russian passports. Those are the two most common kind of fraudulent documents. So person doesn't even exist. They create a passport and they correctly create the checksum for the passport so that A a standard automatic program won't detect that there's a problem with the passport. And they had ways, they had ways to find this. Okay. So
2: let's say, let's say Jason Robbins brings you in and says, I want you to consult and basically tell us how we should go about running DraftKings to be more profitable long-term and provide shareholder value long-term. What would, what would you do there?
3: That's tough because they spend so much. There's a battle for market share, although the battle is winding down. They would have to offer a lot less promotions. They would have to start doing market testing. They would have to make the payoff per fraudulent account a lot less than it is now. So if if a fraudulent account is worth at least 10 grand, the amount of resources syndicates are willing to put into betting in the DraftKings is high. If you lower that cost per fraudulent account to 1,000, it drops. If you get it below five hundred, then you pretty much stop most U.S. fraud.
2: But do they lo- are they losing out by doing that by devoting those resources? Are they losing out on some people that they could, you know, hook uh, with the? I'm not the
3: marketing specialist. I mean, you, the less you give out incentives, yeah, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your market share. Um, but it, it the problem with fraud, it once you establish a payoff on a fraud that is lucrative the fraud problem will go up every month. The amount, of, the amount of losses you have from fraud will continue to increase every single month, upward curve. So a larger and larger percentage of your, of your losses are going to be from fraud. The only way to stop that upward, upward incline is to lower the cost per fraud, the, the payoff per fraudulent account. And they've done nothing to do that. So it's, well, if the, go ahead.
0: No, I just why why can you just explain why you think that the value of the fraudulent
3: account is ten thousand over ten thousand dollars? Because they don't kick most people out until you've made at least ten thousand. They don't do Got most it. of the collaring, and if you if you do no countermeasures, if you just come in and frontally assault them, you can usually take ten grand. I don't. I haven't heard of anyone getting collared winning less than that.
2: And and by frontally assault, you mean what type of betting are we talking? I'm about? just going to
3: bet and beat you. I'm not going to hide it. I'm just going to here it is whip it out hit him over
2: the head with it got it you also did say though that if you're beating if if you're winning and not getting clv you're generally not going to get
3: collared i mean my experience was i didn't get collar toes up two hundred thousand by doing that Combined. So they don't that... look at the account until you start winning right yeah well they look at it but if they look at it and they see parlays and they see no clv you get a lot more latitude so, okay. a lot of a lot of professionals, I think, are spending a lot of energy to make sure that their plays don't leak onto the screen, and by doing that, they enhance the longevity of wherever they're playing. And not just the DraftKings and, but the, um, the even the paperheads. Some of the paperheads are looking at closing line value.
2: So, how does this sort of change in, in market dynamics and, and sort of? Closing lines that are less efficient than than they used to be. How does this affect top-down bettors?
3: Top-down bettors could, could be potentially screwed. Um, th- there's different things you can do with top-down, but one example of an area where I do a little bit of top-down is I assume that the market spread and market total are efficient, and then I use that to price derivatives. And this works great in football, and it used to work really good in college basketball until about the last three years when it hasn't worked. So, you know, for example, let's say I have a total. I'm looking. I'm considering a game, a first half wager, and the game total is 140. And let's say the first half total is 66, um, but that total should really be 142. So it was, it was, it, it was 142. Or let's say it was. I'm, I'm not articulating this well. A game opens at 140. It gets bet down to 138 that first half total of 66 didn't move as far as it should. It moved to 65 and a half. So I see that, oh, that looks high. I think I'll bet the under. And then the person who made it, who pushed it down to 138 actually made it 142. So then they bet it up. And what I found is that I was on the wrong side of a majority of these wagers. So it used to be this, this approach works great, but then with the manipulation, if there's manipulation, a lot, at least the derivative betters are going to be on the wrong side of almost every manipulation.
2: Well, this is going to be if you're on the wrong side of it, because the primary market moved, it was a fake move, yeah. and the derivative market did not move in enough. a corresponding way or enough. Yeah. Rather, rather than if the derivatives moved as they should with that primary market, then I'd be would, fine. It would be don't. equally likely to help or hurt you, right? Like the yes. fact that the market was being dummied.
3: Yeah. But that, um, but my experience is they don't move enough. So it, generally, any time there's a move, the derivatives don't move qu- as fast or as much as they should. And in the past, you could you would get value between a, a combination of a mispriced derivative added to the value of the move not being sufficient. And now- Advantage I mean, stacking, I mean, huh? Pardon me? Yes, it's
2: stacking. Advantage stacking. You're kind of doing a top-down thing as well as, I mean, I, I guess- Derivatives are, top, I mean, they're definitely top down in a way, but but sort of a steam chasing and top down.
3: Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be steam because a lot of these things will sit for hours. And a lot of times they'll open up incorrect. So I remember when... Oh, yeah, I know that. I don't know if you remember when... Quarters track, and stuff.
2: What's that? Sorry? Oh, yeah. Like quarters back in the day.
3: Quarters still in the day. Yeah. So... I mean, you look at the these openers in the U.S. This is another example of U.S. books not having experience when they open first quarter totals on a Monday for NFL and you know college on a Monday or Tuesday, and no one else has them up in there. So not only are the established market, the main market's not established, but there's no established market for the total for them to piggyback. So they're using their own charts uh, that are often pretty horrendous. I remember there was an area with with DraftKings where every total had opened up like in the range of twenty-seven and a half to thirty and a half was six or eight percent low for most of the last couple of seasons of football. Game total? Uh, no, it's, it's the first half totals. Okay. So the if, if you had a it would take me a while to get a good example for that.
2: Well, I mean, there's the differences between the, the mean and the median there that make it pre- i mean th- th- those distributions are very sticky at certain points and so yes yeah. but the it's, it's... For second half too and first sports so, can you guys explain this to me
0: right you guys are two of the smartest people i know around sports betting um what are how is it possible that in this day and age that these things are so still so mispriced in the very obvious ways right like in the uh you know like total, like first half total, like the derivative markets, which there should be, like, there should be technology that moves them based on other, like, why is it possible that this is still the case? Like, what is it? Are they just hiring the wrong people? Is it still misaligned incentives? Are they not paying these people enough? Like, how is this possible? Well, A, A, the US
2: books don't have auto movers, but so that's, that's why this isn't even
0: the, so you're talking about just auto movers from a technology standpoint. Yeah, they, do, yeah. they don't but believe talking, in them, but or also, they don't. Have,
2: they can't do them. I mean, they're hard to do, and
3: I mean, it's There's really hard to do. Two different questions that you're talking about. The, uh, why aren't auto movers implemented? They're trivial to do. The problem is you don't want to move your lines frequently when you're dealing with U.S. players. If you have a million players, and every time you move the line, you're going to re- you may reject ten thousand bets. So you want to do as as few line movements as possible. And there are workarounds on that. For example, in the US market, you might say, I'm not going to move the line unless I move it at least five cents. And if you do that, you may have a lot fewer moves. The worst thing you can do for US players is move the line one cent and then reject 10,000 wagers. Um, as far as why are people mispricing it? There's been charts that have been passed down for 20 years. So there may be one person who made a, a spread to money line chart 20 years ago that everyone's still using. Well, oh, I remember
2: that I, uh, oh, but, I can like speak to this when I was back in the LVSC office. I remember seeing a money lo- like some of these charts up there, and and I actually I, updated those charts for them. Remember, um, that was twenty some years ago, right? Yeah, that was yeah. like yeah, no,
0: nope. they're
3: past. That's kind of the way it works, though. And when you look at these charts, the one glaring thing you see is well, what's the total for the spread? It's like well, we don't use totals when we price spreads. <laughs> what about home favorite versus road favorite? Well, we don't use that. And uh,
2: so, I don't think they should, but you and I disagree on that.
3: <laughs> well, yes, we, we, we can agree to disagree on that. But um, short summary, a give, in my opinion, if you have uh, identical spread and total, you're going to have the road team is less like a road favorite is less likely. The home team is always better off. If you have a 10 point home dog, a ten-point home dog is more likely to win a game than a ten-point road dog.
2: Well, is that is that, bec- that's is big, that big, because because is that because you think that there is more variance?
3: I don't have a reason. Or or the that
2: there it's either more variance or the fact that the market is just inefficient in general and is underpricing um, home dogs, which has been the case like throughout the history of sports betting.
3: I would argue that's not the case. I would mean, no. Let me phrase it. You may be right that they misprice. It mean, has historically, but. Yeah. But the, I mean, I use, I use the answer key to figure out probabilities. And if there's spread, one of the things answer key does is if a home dog is mispriced, say it's a 10 point dog and it really should be an eight point dog answer key kind of picks up on that. So then I look at a, I look at a set of games that really are based on a team that's a 10 points worse, not just a, not just the market spread. And when you, when you do that in every single sport, Football, NBA, you know, college basketball—the home teams do better. So it's not just one market; it's every market I've ever looked
2: at. What you're saying though isn't do better overall. You're saying it's they if the line is efficient, the te- like they on average, you know, the let's say the median result is a ten. The median result is is fifty percent, right? Yeah. On on covering the spread or not, they win more often, meaning that so which means that there is going to be more variance. It means that there's fewer fewer there are fewer instances where they lose the game by less than ten points. than what you're saying I mean, is, isn't it no, home dog, a I'm home saying, dog of ten points? A home dog of ten points loses the game by one to nine points. Few, uh, less often than a road dog.
0: I see loses what you're saying. Yes,
3: yes, I agree.
0: So, I mean, yeah, isn't it as I,
3: simple
2: as it?
0: Isn't it as simple as like the distribution of outcomes is just different for yeah, for the two, two and that's, yeah. <laughs> well, but Rufus says is, it I, in a way that like no one can understand. So I'm trying to say well, it in a way that people, Okay, so, but so now here's a question opinion, from, and from and the I research. Place, can that. I, yeah. Can I just ask one question from the research that you've looked at who also is the other tail equally less probable or sort of more probable meaning like, is the, like in the 10 point spread, is it more likely that they lose by 20 or is it all just shifted one direction? Because if it's all just shifted in one direction, doesn't that mean that the actual
2: outcome?
3: Well, no, I guess not. That's what because I said, because
0: like, the the whole
2: on. point is conditional on a true being a true median.
3: Yeah. So if you have, if, if that's a true median and you have 50% of your results are less than 10 and more of them are, you went out, you know, outright, then there has to be fewer in the one to nine range.
2: Right. And to me, the reason that would happen would be either you think somehow the game is played differently there or and, and the fact is maybe a, a, a road team up three doesn't try to, I don't know, keep trying or I, I have no idea what what the argument would be exactly. But 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 somehow the game is played differently, like end game situations or something. Um, but the other argument is just that there is more variance when you have a home underdog than when you have a road under road under, underdog. And I will say that in the sports I've looked at, the the variance argument doesn't really hold. So I never actually have looked at, I I find it, I guess I find it hard to believe that the distribution would be that different, um, or I just like, what what would be the mechanism for that? I guess
3: maybe the, you know, the home field advantage is mostly in the first half or first quarter, or at least that's, I, I, I would argue that. If you
2: have, data clearly, yeah.
3: So if you have a 10 point favorite, 10 point favorites, that favorite will be a bigger favorite if it's a home team in the first half. If it's a road favorite, it'll be a smaller first half favorite. So your, your home team is going to be closer. If the home team is more likely to have a competitive game at halftime, then I don't know. I'm just thinking out. You, you, you put me on the spot on a question I haven't thought about.
2: Yeah, I mean, but I I do think in general these things. I mean, because you can even with a lot of data over many years in sports, like there are there are going to be things that that come up that look like they're real effects that are just noise. Right?
3: Yeah, you look like, at hundred things. Like, you're going to find if you find... look at
2: British yeah. golfers play much better relative to other golfers in the rain on your Euro- in the European tour, like huh. very significant huh. effect, not on the PGA tour, right? So. I mean, I I don't like. And
3: why does the player who serves first in a tennis match win like fifty two percent of their matches?
2: Is it random who? Well, yeah. You, do do they it spin is, the racket like we like? I it's it's randomly I selected. Tennis?
3: Yeah, in most cases, it's randomly selected. There are a few players who will choose not to. They'll choose to receive first. And algebraically, it should be identical.
2: Momentum. I don't know if you get might, the lead, getting the lead early. I
3: mean, like it's psychological, probably, right? I don't know, (laughs) but it's you don't have to know as long as it's actionable. Although when is you know, I guess you have to decide when is it actionable.
2: Yeah, I mean that's like the whole thing with, and that's kind of my issue with a lot of these machine learning models, and, and the fact that you know, if you're gonna, if you look at enough things, you will find things that that look. Like they should be actionable. Look at their real look like the real effects that in reality are just random.
3: And if you're running machine learning, as long as you're using the right methodology, you're protected from that. Well,
2: most I, I kind of I, I philosophically kind of still disagree with that. Actually, I know if you if you cross validate and all that, and then in essence you're overfitting to the cross validation.
1: Yeah, but you probably you probably it protects do you by, by
3: one step, but. You, you you'll do it less often than a human
2: yes but and also i mean i the other, my other issue is the fact that like we know things about sports like we know that a team i mean if you come up if you have i uh, i i i once saw somebody's cross validated like a uh, a live um a live i think it was nba win probability model that had a 7 point favorite with 50 seconds to go having a uh having less of a chance of winning than a 6 point or not seven point favorite, a team up seven with 50 seconds to go had, had fewer chances of winning than a yeah. uh, team up six.
3: Yeah, that sounds like a good problem. So,
2: right. Like, yeah. it's like that goes against logic. So, I mean, I feel like there's, I think you want to build, and, and Elio, you're you're one of the most logical people I know. I mean, you want to build something, you you want to code in the logic that you do know. I, I'd before agree. Before you that. let the machine learning do its thing.
3: Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll agree with that. But if, if I look at a problem and I see a compelling result and I can't explain why, and then usually I'm t- like first round of data analysis. I'm not taking a machine, I don't use blind machine learning, but if I see something and I, I believe this dog phenomena, that you know home dogs are better than road dogs is in every sport. I, I, I can't necessarily tell you why, but I, it's, I see it in enough areas that I think it's a truth. No? could I be wrong yeah it's it's a
0: fascinating thing though at at the core right because from a broader perspective it's like the the challenge with being data driven right which is like when you are truly data driven and you see something in enough data that you can't explain and you continue to you know like harp on that right ultimately without yeah. some sort of fundamental and then the real problem becomes if things change a little bit how quickly are you to jump off of that and say like, you know what I mean? Like in the in the thing that you were talking about with the market manipulation, like how long did it take you to start to, you know, like when you weren't winning or whatnot, how long did, you, it, did it take you to say like, maybe things have changed?
3: About $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just when you see that, the, there's no good answer to that. When you see that things aren't moving quite the way you want, I'm not getting the, you know, I I expect to get closing line value on my first half plays. And if I'm not, something has changed. And that is if I'm betting it everywhere. Um, And in college, you know, in college, well, there's there's two, there's there's small edges. If you bet something that has less than a 4% CLV and you don't bet it into the market testers, it may never show up. You may never see closing line value on it. And that's kind of by purpose. If you bet something that has a 10% CLV against these derivatives, the markets are going to move with you eventually. Or 10% Even whether, edge. 10% edge. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not you bet it into Pinnacle or Bookmaker or Circa, those books are going to move your way. You're at 10%. Maybe not the full 10%, but there'll be some. Because there are other people that will identify this. Other, yes. Yeah. So, and that I mean, that's the whole idea of market efficiency when you have The reason it closes is because like-minded people who see things that work, whose bank roles have grown exponentially over time, are doing the same thing.
2: Does that relate to the tweet that you put out um, the other day? Uh, I'll read it. Which is a better bet? A super liquid market opens, it closes at minus 110, minus 110, and you pick off a rogue plus 101. Or a similar market opens at plus 100, minus 120, closes minus 110, minus 110, and you bet the plus 100 before the move now the 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 sort of initial response would be okay plus 101 a market's minus 110 minus 110 that's even money you're getting a one cent edge whereas you know the other market closes the same plus 100 and you bet it at plus 100 like if you just if that's all you knew i mean you're saying that then you would say okay the first one is is better i mean just because You have a one cent edge there, basically. But what you're saying is the process of getting there tells us something.
3: Yeah, and now you, if you describe it like a poker hand, let's assume, assume there's a probability. We don't know what the probability is of this outcome. What is the probability of you winning the bet? And if it's the price is minus one ten both ways, and that's all the information you have, then your hands are bounded between, in a very efficient market, between forty seven point six and fifty two point four. It has to be in the range of the vigorous or someone would have bet it. So, in the case where you took plus one hundred one, uh, in a, you know when when the market was between fifty and fifty four point five, yeah, you had a half half percentage. That's a, that's a sure thing. But in the case where it opened at minus one hundred ten, yeah, both ways, you took a minus one hundred ten, and it closed at one hundred twenty. The range, assuming it's an efficient market. And assume I'm assuming that the books do not move off of square action, that only the sharp action is moving it. And if you accept that premise, then the, the fair probability can't be less than 52.4. It would be about capped between 52.4 and 54.5 if no one's going to bet it unless they, you know, for the zero edge. And in fact, it's pro- in reality, it's probably at least a percent higher than that. You could probably cap it at 53.5 to 55.5. Because a lot of pros aren't going to bet with less than a 2% edge. at least not, you know, super liquid. So if you, sure. if you accept that, but let's go with the first one, which is we've set a, a bounds. The probability of this wager winning is between 52.4 and 54.5. So say the average is 53.4. You probably have your bet at 52.4 has a, a roughly 2% return. So versus a half percent return for the other the situation the original one where you're taking plus one oh one into a plus one hundred slash minus one twenty market. So the if you accept efficient market theory and then it's the sharps, the, the the people who can correctly price the market that moved the line from 110 to 120, then betting the 110 in that situation is a much better bet.
2: Just because they won't bet it
3: all the way to efficient.
2: There's nothing that'll yeah.
3: Yeah. You, 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 you yeah, that's one to way be higher. It has to be higher than 52.4, or they wouldn't have bet it. Right. So, um, and it's it. So, you look, you know, I'm writing a book right now, and I'm posting every once in a while, I tweet something about what I'm thinking about or writing about. And there's a million little things you can do to, you know, I like the title of your podcast, Bet the Process, because doing smart things over and over and making your process better ultimately means your money will grow exponentially a lot faster and there's a lot of little things you can do just thinking about things not just modeling and not just coming up with markets and bets but about your process to make your bets count for more make better decisions you know
2: yeah i mean i've learned i've learned a lot over the years talking to you and just and listening to some of the questions you pose
0: well elihu We've kept you on for a while. Like this is probably one of the longest interviews we've had because it was fascinating. Uh, appreciate you joining us and listening to our. You got to You got to First seat to Rufus and I bickering. So at least you know it's it's real. But um, well, I for feel joining, like I missed the us. bickering.
3: So I, I didn't see yeah, you two go, go at it like I often hear you guys.
0: Well, because like we got like someone really smart on, so we got to sit and listen to someone really smart versus like hearing <laughs> the two of us with our shenanigans. So. Not that the rest of our guests aren't really smart. Sometimes we just decide that it's more important to hear our own voices, like right now. So um, thank you for joining us, Rufus. Anything
2: else? No. uh, Anything you want to promote, Elihu?
3: Nope. Uh, I'm still a long way away from finishing this thing, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. Okay.
2: Let me know if you want someone to read the manuscript.
3: All right. Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Okay. Thanks, dude. Really enjoyed it.
3: right.
0: So that was Elihu, our interview with them, which I think both of us found fascinating as you could tell, cause it kind of ran long and I actually shut up for once, which I'm sure most of you guys were pretty happy about. And um, then we
2: talked another like 20 minutes after off air. So.
0: Yeah, no, I think yeah. th- we talked about this concept of like left to right and right to left handicap, meaning like, do you look at the data first and then come up with a model or do you have a hypothesis that you believe in and then look at the data and then build the model off that hypothesis. And I think we're all much bigger believers in starting with a hypothesis. Um, I think a lot about it in the world of data broadly, like where, you know, when I ran data science and analytics at Twitter, I talked a lot about how I like to hire scientists and I had some unbelievable like scientists that like went and did a data science boot camp, learned, you know, different, you know, data engineering techniques, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, you know, became data scientists versus people that like either studied computers or math or data science at some level, and then went into it that way. And I just love people that understand scientific method and, and hypothesis testing. Rufus, did you want to? No, I mean, I think you
2: you summarized the conversation. Well, And that was Ellie, who's uh, idea of the left to right, calling it left to right, which is, yeah, no, it's a fascinating way to think about it. And like,
0: um, yeah. I, I, I love, again, really enjoyed the way he thinks. Um, the idea of, you know, one of the things that's so interesting when you talk to a professional better, like that is the idea that it's, um, goes without saying that these accounts are worth $10,000, meaning like you can get the bonuses
2: and then beat them. You know, what do you, what do you say? Straightforward or straight, straight up? Yeah, I mean, he basically up. said that you can make 10,000 before they're going to like limit you. Yeah.
0: But again, that re- that that uh that assumes that you have a model that can beat them <laughs> or
2: that you have a better or that, that you can pick advantage advantage of soft blinds and stuff like that. Oh. I mean yeah. there's there's ways I, to win without a model. I guess I assumed a little originating bit. You but he did. If you're it. trying to win a small amount of money, you can do it without a model for sure. Got it. Um
0: Scottish Open, Rufus. We got we got any got any like picks for the Scottish Open. You're on a sure. you're on a big run here. We've we've done well you know with the Ricky Fowler 0.3% EV pick and then last week
2: the Substracka post dating pick so and, and I hit Keegan I hit Keegan the week before as well. Yeah, but you yeah. didn't give that out on the pod. It's True. And I guess you gave out Fowler or wait, did I give out Fowler? I don't even know, but Fowler but you was You said Fowler. But I didn't then... actually bet Fowler because I'm not betting a 0.3% edge. Yeah, well, uh this cause... week this week right now, it's funny how the market has kind of moved a lot uh, after tea times came out, because it looks like there's going to be a, a pretty clear weather split. Um, I The bet I kind of liked the most of the guys near the top um, when the market opened um, yesterday morning was Tyrell Hatton at 25 to 1, although now the best I see on him is plus 21.73. I make him plus 21.35, So and plus 21.73 is a pinnacle. So there's not really much there. I think um, you know, I don't hate Rory here at like 10 to 1 or there's some nine to ones. Um, I mean, it's it's that's not a big edge, but it's um he looks to be on the wrong side of the draw. But again, there's still a lot of uncertainty. I mean, weather on Lynx courses matters a lot. However, it's also tougher to predict weather on the coast like that. It can change quite quickly. And so there's it, it's it's interesting, Jeff, right? Because and I haven't actually quantified the uncertainty part of it, but I believe that this to be the case from previous events and, you know, I don't know, my intuition. but so so you have something that's more uncertain, but at the same time has a bigger impact. Do those cancel each other out Hard to say? I don't know. Uh, if you want, like a let's see, something available to US book a long shot, um, Keith Mitchell, one hundred and sixty to one at Fanduel. That's actually you can get him at two hundred to one to bet online too. I make him one thirty two to one.
0: There you go, Keith Mitchell, official long shot golfer of the Bet the Process podcast. Rory looks to be like a little less than ten to one, at least. Yeah, I mean that at.
2: that didn't open there. That opened at like it was like eight to one everywhere yesterday. Uh, generally, and now it's it's moved up after, and and Scheffler's odds have moved down because they're on the opposite sides of the draw.
0: Tyrell looks like to be twenty to one where I'm looking, so not a lot House of Tyrell. Not a lot of value. No. House Tyrell. Um, all right. Well, thanks I'm, everyone for listening. Anything else you want to talk about? Rufus? I was going to say there's the some
2: British- there's, there's some scattered value just with some of the the like deep long shots, uh, just. It's gonna. It's not gonna be super windy until Sunday, but uh, it's. There's the weather every day is showers, so there's gonna be some. Uh, there's just there, There's more randomness with Lynx courses as well. So I think that there are some. Um, some of these names that you've never heard of, um, European Tour guys, uh, that have some value. This like is a sad Grant week. Grant Forest at four hundred twenty to one, for example grant forest yeah oh, it's not God. a forest course it's a uh it's a it's links a links course, course? Mm-hmm. you've been playing any golf how's the peabody cup going you know i have played like i have not played golf uh all week tom was back in portland so he hasn't been up here and so we've kind of I've, i've just been kind of in this you know working going to the gym that's been my life hanging with the parents hanging with the parents it's been really nice It's nice. It's a nice change of pace. It's
0: very special.
2: When do you move into your new place? Still don't know. Points unknown? Points unknown. I'll let you know when
0: I know. All right, man. As always, great to talk to you. Great to talk to everyone. Next week, we'll be back with another guest. Um, We're going to have a good run of guests, I feel like, coming up. So, um, Talk to you guys all again soon, and thanks for listening.
1: Peabody body rankings, crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data. Analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppet are but to engine's just running off a leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year. They just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the information, turn the losing betters into winners. Yeah, somehow. Huh? Reppin' Rutgers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunching all the numbers, Massey Peabody rankings, we we'll, 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 we'll look for the edge, analytically driven, crunchin' all the numbers,